If you'll open up your Bibles to the letter of James, chapter 1. We already began studying this on Wednesday night. If you were not able to be with us, I encourage you to go back and check it out. This book is going to go by fast. It is incredibly practical. It's very different than Hebrews. Now, Hebrews was filled with practicality as well, but... But where Hebrews was more revelation of the exaltation of Jesus, this letter is practical. I mean, it is down to earth. I shared Wednesday night, it's called the Proverbs of the New Testament. Because it line by line tells us what to do. And I like that. And it's a good shift from where we were the last few months to get into now brass tacks, you know, where the rubber meets the road. Putting hands and feet to the things that we're learning. And that's what this letter does. Well, I want to begin in verse 18. Chapter 1, verse 18. In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among His creatures. Skip down to verse 21. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, In humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves, doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. Between about 20 B.C. and 70 A.D., the people of Judea had a unique burial process. The body was wrapped in linens and spices, and laid in a tomb. You're familiar with that, I'm sure. But after decomposition, usually about a year, the bones were collected in a process called oscillegium. In the oscillegium process, they took the bones out of the tomb and placed them in a small stone box or ossuary. This practice of burial actually worked very well in a world before Twinkies. When the body used to decompose, is what I'm saying. In 1982, however, an Israeli engineer and uh, kind of private antiquities collector, a guy by the name of Oded Golan, bought a 20 by 10 by 12 inch ossuary box, a limestone ossuary. He bought it at auction, very, very ancient, and he was just interested in these things. Well, this little box sat in obscurity in his private collection for 16 years. Nobody really, but Oded Golan knew that he had it. In 2002, the story broke. And it was announced in a Washington press conference, and also in the November-December edition of Biblical Archaeological Review magazine. Expert analysis stated that not only was the box itself dated to the first century A.D., but it held a remarkable 20-letter Hebrew and Aramaic inscription and plastered across Biblical Archaeological Review and picked up in newspapers internationally was this 20-letter phrase, James, the son of Joseph, the brother of Jesus. 
fascinating because typically on an ossuary, they would have the name of the person, perhaps the name of the person and their father, but rarely ever would they add siblings onto the name of the box unless the box held more than one person's bones. And in this case, James, the son of Joseph, the brother of Jesus, it was immediately called the James ossuary. You may have read about it, heard about it. It was a big deal. We talked about it years ago. In fact, it was right after we began this fellowship that that news broke. And we talked about it a little bit. How interesting. Is it possible that this ossuary held the bones of James? Now, the bones weren't in there. By the time Ode Golan bought the box and, and stored it, and then it came to light, the bones weren't there any longer. But the box holds incredible significance. Archaeologists were saying, if this was in fact James, the brother of Jesus, then what this box was for us would be the first archaeological evidence from the first century of the existence of the historical Jesus. Now, there's all kinds of evidence of the existence of the historical Jesus. In fact, more evidence, even without archaeology, than we have for George Washington. But that set aside... This box was a big deal. It was suddenly holding all the intrigue of an Indiana Jones movie or a Dan Brown novel, except this wasn't fiction. This was true. Well, the story grew in fascination, especially when the Israeli Antiquities Authority called the inscription a forgery. And what was called the trial of the century took place in Israel. As they began to debate whether or not this Odeg Golan was actually forging these things, had, had come up with the inscription himself. And he was charged with 44 counts of forgery. The trial went on and on, and of course in long trials the public can tend to lose interest. Seven years. Now, during this trial, two highly uh, respected paleographers, Andre Lemaire of the Sorbonne and Ada Yardini of the Hebrew Inter- uh, University in Jerusalem, all pronounced the inscription 100% authentic. No paleographer has ever uh, challenged their analysis. Yardini, a household name in the field, he said, if this is a forgery, I quit. That's how sure he was. Well, let me give you an update on the James Ossuary in case you heard about these these things and then kind of lost interest yourself. On March 14th, 2012, after seven years, 138 witnesses, 400 exhibits, 1,200 pages of testimony, Jerusalem Judge Aaron Farkash acquitted Oded Galan of all forgery charges. The box appeared authentic. So the question is, did this ossuary actually once contain the bones of James? And I'm here to give you an answer this morning, once and for all. No. It did not. I can say this with absolute certainty. It did not hold the bones of James. You see, James, the son of Joseph, the brother of Jesus, is not exactly what was inscribed on the box. Actually, the inscription reads in the Hebrew Aramaic, Yaakov, Bar Yosef, Achui de Yeshua, Jacob, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. Now, if you were here Wednesday night, you know we talked about this. There are no Jameses in the Bible. Every single name of James that you see in the New Testament is not the right name. It's an anglicized version of the name Jacob. If you look at the Greek, you see Jacobus. 
If you read it in Hebrew, it's Yaakov. There are no Jameses. So when we look at the different men named James in the New Testament, James the son of Zebedee, brother of John, James the son of Alphaeus, James the father of Judas, not Iscariot, it's always Yaakovus or Yaakov. This is the letter of Yaakov, the letter of Jacob. If you want to anglicize it, just call it that. And I may even have Yeva change it on the website just to freak people out. (laughs) We are not studying the letter of James. We are studying the letter of Jacob. And I think it's further evidence of the authenticity both of this letter but also of that ossuary. Because that ossuary very may well have bore the bones of Jacob. Son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. That I do not dispute. Interesting, Jacob. Jacob. Now, whether or not the ossuary carried Jacob's bones is really kind of beside the point because we don't worship stones and bones. That's not where our interest is. We worship a risen and living Savior. Amen? Jesus Christ, who said in Revelation 1.17, I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. And not only is Jesus himself the living one, but his own word is living. You don't need to spend a whole lot of time in the Bible to realize that. Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And Jacob says in verse 18 of chapter 1, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Just break down that verse. He brought us forth. That is, He caused us to be born again. To bring forth is to bear, as in birth. He caused us to be born again by the word of truth. That is the gospel. And I showed you on Wednesday night that every single reference to the word of truth in the New Testament is a reference to the gospel. And it's mentioned five times. He brought us forth by the word of truth so that we we would be a kind of first fruits and first fruits always refers to resurrection. In other words, we have been born again by the gospel as resurrected ones so that we would follow after Jesus. This is what God has done. It's what he's done by his word. As Paul said in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And my question for you this morning is, do you believe that? It doesn't really matter what you believe about the bones of Jacob. The question is, do you believe that this word is his word? Do you take God and his word at face value? Do you accept it to be true. I was playing a game last night with my daughter and my son-in-law and uh, <laughs> I made a comment at one point to uh, Josiah. I, my son-in-law said, so Josiah you're really a literalist, aren't you? Because every rule in the game had to be followed exactly. You know, at one point in the game you had to say next if you were passing the cards and Hannah said something other than next and Josiah said, oh, you can't say that. 
I said, you're a literalist, aren't you? He said, yes, I am. I said, do you take scripture literally? And he goes, yes, I do. And he goes, do you see any tattoos? <laughs> I thought that was funny. Do you take God at his word? You see, when God speaks, it happens. He doesn't speak and it doesn't happen. He always speaks and it takes place. And for our part, in this first chapter, Yaakov sets the tone for the entire letter in three clear imperatives. This is a doing letter. This is a letter where once you have heard the word, you got to act on the word or you really haven't heard the word. And he makes this point over and over. And with all the different proverbial sayings and all the graphic pictures that we read in the letter of Yaakov, what we come out with at the end is get busy. Do the work. Respond to what you've heard. This seems to be the call of Yaakov. In fact, note this in verse 5 of chapter 1. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. So right out the gate, ask And then down in verse 19, he says, This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear. So ask and hear. And then finally in verse 22, prove yourselves doers of the word. Ask, hear, do. That sums up Yaakov's message. Ask, hear, do. Now this morning I just want to talk about doing the word. And what the Word does to us and in us and through us. But before we can begin to do the Word, to actually act on the things we hear, something has to take place. Look at verse 21. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the Word implanted, which is able to save your souls. The word implanted must be received, and note this, in humility. Without humility, you're not going to receive the word. You can't receive the word. He says this is a word that is able to save your souls, and it's an interesting use of the word soul in the Greek, because it speaks typically of the mind or the intellect. This word can save your sanity, and it truly can. Make a difference in the way you think in this world and the way you perceive and understand what's really going on here. This word can save our souls, our sanity, our minds. But but understand that Yaakov is using the word souls more universally here. And that does happen in the scriptures. He's talking more about not just our sanity, our minds, our intellect, but who we are. This word is capable of saving us, body, soul, and spirit. It's a big picture comment that he makes. And we receive this word implanted, able to save us, to save our souls in humility. In humility. In humility. I was thinking about that just this morning again. In humility, I confess to you, I am not a humble man. Humility is something that I work at. Or actually that God works at in me. Humility is something that through my life I have had to learn many times the hard way. That the opposite does not work well. And that if you're going to walk with Jesus, you got to look to Him as the answer and not yourself. Humility. Psalm 25 verse 9 says, He leads the humble 
injustice. He teaches the humble His ways. In chapter 4 of Yaakov's letter, verse 10, he writes, Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. And again here in verse 21, In humility, receive the word implanted. Humility, one of the things that I had to learn about humility was that it was not feigned behavior. It wasn't the face that you put on on a Sunday morning to impress other Christians with how humble you really were while inside you're going, oh yeah. (laughs) Humility happens when the heart is pierced with an honest recognition of the majesty of God in the person of Jesus. I don't think I really started on a path of understanding that, of even gaining a sense of what real humility was until I started to really look at Jesus Christ and see Him for who He is and understand His grandeur that He is the high and exalted One. He is the glorious One. I'm a bug by comparison. He's the One who says in Isaiah 57.15 Thus says the high and exalted One who lives forever whose name is holy I dwell on a high and holy place and also also Also, thank the Lord with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. I love that about Jesus. About our God. That is exalted and supreme and magnificent as He is. And coming to the end of that Hebrew study that we did, even on Easter Sunday morning, blown away by the exaltation of Jesus. He is the one who stoops low. The one who bends down to the lowly. The one who's looking for those who are contrite and recognize our desperate need for Him. See, that's part of the deal. People tend to reject Jesus when they don't think they need Him. When they think they're fine. And that is the essence of pride. Because pride all centers around me. And my ability to, to stand and to, and to get through and to be a good person, that is pure pride. And it takes nothing short of humility to do what we're told we must do here. And that is to put aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. If you don't have this humility, if you aren't growing in humility before the Lord, you're going to have trouble doing this. To put aside all filthiness. And literally, it says all that remains of wickedness. That's that's not a good translation. A better translation would be the abundance of wickedness. It's not just that which remains. It's that which is abundant. That which is piled up all around us. And if we were to read this with the the Hebrew mindset of Yaakov, we, we would get it better. Look at it this way. The language in verse 21 implies a closet full of old dated clothes. Just piled up. Bags and rags of clothes that, you know what, it's not coming back in style, man. Let it go. And it stinks. It's, it's a closet full of outdated, unwashed clothes. And there's just more and more that's added to it. The abundance of wickedness. And he says, put aside all filthiness. Wickedness is the word kakia. And it means intentional evil. And that's the stuff we see piling up all around us in this world, don't we? Intentional evil. 
where people aren't even trying to pretend that they're not evil anymore. They're just embracing it and intending to do harm and to speak brutally. The truth is there are some wicked things we just don't want to let go. I'm kind of comfortable with some rags. And besides, those pants might come back. That shirt just might find its way back into, you know, the weekly wear. Wickedness is intentional evil. Filthiness, this is the only time the word is used in the New Testament. It's ruparia. And it means moral impurity. And it has more to do with the morality that you wear as opposed to simply the wicked things that you have done or or do. Moral impurity. The noun is used here. The adjective form is used in chapter 2, verse 2, where he says, if a man comes into your assembly or synagogue with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor poor man in dirty clothes, that word dirty is the adjective form here of ruparia. So, moral impurity, dirtiness, and it's a picture of dirty clothing. Now, you may wonder, Rick, where are you getting this clothing metaphor, that this picture you keep referring to? I get it from the phrase, putting aside. Because putting aside is literally taking off, as in taking off clothing. And so what James is saying, Yaakov, what he is saying to us is, take off this, this, this moral impurity. Take off the filthy clothes of immorality. Clear out the old raggedy threads that are piling up in your closet. Get rid of that stuff. If you're wearing it, take it off. If it's in the closet, if it's growing, clear it out. And Yaakov is referring to here, I believe, a very Jewish picture. Now keep your finger here and go back to the book of Zechariah. Second to last book in the Hebrew Scriptures. Zechariah, Malachi. Zechariah chapter 3. Verse 1. Give you a second to find it. Zechariah 3, 1. Zechariah the prophet receives a very interesting prophecy here, writes it down. He says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. Now, this is in the days of the returns of the return of the exiles. So come back from their exile in Babylon. And he sees in this vision Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now, Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. And he spoke and he said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. And again he said to him, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. Hang on a second. Wait a minute. Who is speaking in verse 4? It's the angel of the Lord. Right? I mean, look at verse 3. Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. Okay? The malach is the word. It simply means messenger. 
And he spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. And again he said, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. What angel knows how to take away iniquity? (laughs) There is no angel other than the Lord Jesus Christ who could do that. We're talking about Jesus here. In my opinion, the Malach Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, is Jesus. He's the one who takes away iniquity and clothes with festal robes. Then I said to him, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. He's clothed by the command and in the presence of the angel of the Lord. In other words, note this, it's Jesus who gives him the new clothes. It's God who brings the festal robe, who changes the clothes. It's not Joshua the high priest. He doesn't just take off one set of clothes for some others that he picked out on sale. He is clothed by the Lord. Isaiah 61 verse 10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me in a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. I point this out just to say that righteous clothing is always given. It is never achieved. Never earned. Never purchased. Except by the one who gives it, the Lord Jesus Christ, who purchased our righteousness with his very blood. And so Revelation 19 verse 7 says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And I've told you this before, that means even my righteous acts were given to me. Even my ability to do the Word as we're looking at this morning, to act on the things that I have taught, been taught, even my ability to take off the filthy and all that remains of wickedness or the abundance of wickedness, the ability to do that is given to me by the power of the Lord, by the blood of the Lamb. What does all that have to do with humility? Everything. There is nothing I can do for myself. He has done it all. Why wouldn't I want to be rid of filthy rags? I mean, those of you who bum around during the week or maybe around the house in filthy rags, why? Why are you still wearing that stuff? Why wouldn't I want to be rid of moral impurity and intentional wickedness? And there's one word answer. Pride. It's just pride. See, I really thought I looked good in that neon pink sweatshirt back in the 80s. I did. I wore that with pride. I look at pictures now and I ask, what was I thinking? What was wrong with my head? Especially when I wore it with those purple parachute pants. What was that about? It's not coming back. It's not coming back. Praise Jesus, it's not coming back. Hey, in stark contrast to humility, it is my pride that thinks I look good in filthy rags. That's the issue in the world. That I'm fine with 
my little amounts of moral impurity, with the occasional intentional wickedness. I'm doing this because I want to do it, and it's okay. It looks fine on me, besides I can handle it. And Isaiah the prophet said in Isaiah 64 verse 6, For all of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like filthy, uh, a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Now listen to me, long-time believers. We are at risk. Understand this. We can start to think that our righteousness looks pretty good. And we can start to take stock of it and feel good about it and take pride in it. And the next thing you know, it's piling up like an abundance of wickedness because it's all about pride. The Word of God upends my pride. And it offends my (laughs) self-righteousness. And it puts an end to my old life. And that's why we need to gaze into this Word. Because I don't care how long you've been following Jesus or how long you've counted yourself a Christian, the more time you spend in the Word, the more it humbles you. Because you recognize, I am not up to these things. So I want to tell you ahead of time, before we read any more on this, that even the idea of putting aside filthiness and all that remains of wickedness is something you can't do. I can't do, but by the Spirit of the Lord God. And in humility... In humility, are you willing in humility to allow the Spirit to strip off all of that old stuff so that you can receive the Word implanted? One more picture here. No one likes to dress down in a doctor's office. You know the feeling. We've all had it. Okay, remove your clothes and the doctor will be right in. (laughs) What? Or they give you that little paper robe. That's just beautiful, man. You want me to put this on? And you know, and then you put it on, you're standing there in the office all by yourself in that silly piece of paper. And you hear people walking around outside the door and you're like, I hope no one comes in here. And I hope the doctor has poor vision. (laughs) But you have to do it, Deb, right? Because there is no way that you can receive the Word implanted. You can't have the surgical work of the Holy Spirit done as long as you're wearing your filthy rags. Got to take them off. You got to be willing to strip it down. And it only happens by the power of the Spirit of God. In humility. But this is where it really gets good. What happens when the Word gets in? What happens when the word is truly implanted? Verse 22, but prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. Doers simply means one who willingly obeys. And you can always tell, and this is a theme of James, of Yaakov. This is a running theme of the entire letter. You can tell if someone's received the word implanted because they do it. It's as simple as that. You have not received the Word if you're not doing the Word. If it's not changing you, if it's not working out in your life and bringing about a new kind of fruit, you haven't received it. A true implantation of the Word of God will always produce. It's powerful. It's a potent seed. You know, it it gets in there and it works its way into and through your life. This is why I've said for years, man, if you do nothing else, study the Word of God. Because the more you're in the Word, the more it will change you and you can't help it. 
I love when people show up at the bridge all grumpy and not thinking they can learn anything, but they're going to be here to prove me wrong. Okay, show up. Because the Word's going to get in, man. And it's going to start affecting you. And you can't help but think about it. By the way, I think that's why sometimes people stay away from church. Because in the Spirit, they know, if I go there, it's going to change me. Well, it does. A true implantation of the Word, it's going to germinate, it'll grow, it'll bring up sweet fruit. Especially in the good soil of a willing heart, a doing heart. And as I said, Yaakov builds on this dynamic of an obvious, visible faith all the way through this letter. It's what he's writing about. Let your faith be seen. Do what you learn. Yaakov chapter 2 verse 18, someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. He's not talking about works-based salvation. He's talking about faith that is alive and active and visible in a life. If you say you believe, show me. You, you will show it if you believe it. Yaakov chapter 3 verse 13, who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior, his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. Or how about chapter 4, verse 17? Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. It is all about the doing of the thing. Yaakov is into faith in action. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is into faith in action. God wants His children on the move. Jesus wants His people Living it out. Not just acknowledging it with no response or reaction. So what happens to those in humility become doers of the Word? Now check out, we're going to draw out three things here, but they're kind of converse to what is actually written. If you look at verse 22, he says, Prove yourselves doers of the Word, not merely hearers, who delude themselves. Well, guess what? The opposite of those who are hearers only, who delude themselves... Those who do the word receive clarity. Clarity. In humility, you receive the word implanted, and as you do so, you will receive clarity. A a different view of the word. Hearers only are delusional. And my friends, he's talking about spiritual delusion. Yaakov is writing to believers here, Jewish believers... Because at that point, that's primarily what the church was. And he's saying, if you show up and you listen and it doesn't do anything, you're deluding yourself. You're deceiving yourself. That same word is used by Paul in Colossians, and it's also translated deceiving. You are deluded, you're self-deceived. It's the one who hears the word and does nothing with it. And he's talking to churchgoers. Specifically those who are sitting... Perhaps right here, I hope not here. Week after week after week, they like what they hear. Oh, they're comforted by it. Occasionally they have their ears tickled, but all the while they falsely believe, I'm fine. It's all good. Yaakov draws a line in the sanctuary. And he says there is a difference between those who are hearers only, who delude themselves, and Doers who have clarity, who really begin to see what's going on. 
Jesus compares these who build, uh, these who delude themselves, he compares to those who would build vacation homes on beautiful sandy beaches. All the while ignoring hurricane warnings, Jesus says in Matthew 7 verse 24, Therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock, the foundation which is Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 3.11 tells us, The only foundation, build on the rock. But Jesus also said, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. Yaakov is only saying what Jesus already said. And by the way, I mentioned Wednesday night that this letter of Yaakov has 45 references to the Hebrew Scriptures. And yet, there's probably double that in reference to the words of Jesus. Yaakov heard what his brother, second or half-brother by flesh, said. And it got in. And he refers constantly to the words and the teaching of Jesus. And this is no exception. This whole idea of being a doer of the Word comes straight off the Sermon on the Mount. As Jesus Himself said, don't just hear... If you're hearing, you're on the sand and you're on shaky ground. Don't just listen and wander off going, (laughs) it's all fine. Build on the rock of Jesus Christ in your life. Clarity, vision, understanding. It's not just what we hear, it's what we do. And again, the proof is in the walk. You can say all day long, oh yeah, I heard that. I heard what, you know, I heard the scripture read, I heard the teaching. But if it's not changing the behavior, if it's not altering the lifestyle, if it's not affecting us practically, we never heard it. The walk of the Word produces clarity. There's a great biblical word for clarity, and it's discernment. You know, to be able to discern what's really going on in this world around us, in my life personally, to have understanding, we might even use the word vision. Why would someone build on the rock rather than the sand? Because you see the storm is coming. You're aware of what's happening around you. So you build in a solid place. The one who builds on the sand isn't thinking, has no discernment, no wisdom, no vision. You know, it's interesting to me, one of the primary prophetic signs of the coming Messiah was that he would give sight to the blind. He'd open the eyes of the blind. Isaiah 29.18 In that day the deaf will hear the words of a book and out of gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind will see. Isaiah 35 verse 5 The eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. And Isaiah 42 verse 6 I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you and I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. This is a messianic song God is singing about Jesus. And He says to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. Let me ask you this, are you in the dark about life and eternity? Are you uncertain about what is coming in the future? Don't delude yourself. The Word brings clarity. If you act on it, 
Receiving it in humility, you receive clarity, and guess what? Doers of the word also gain identity. Identity. Verse 23. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For he has looked at himself and gone away, and he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. Great question. What kind of person are you? Ever asked that about yourself? I'm sure you have. What kind of person am I? (laughs) Many of us would just as soon forget. What kind of person am I? Usually that question follows us doing something stupid. You know, that everybody else sees. And you walk away going, what kind of person am I? (laughs) Well, what kind of person are you? Great question. It's a funny story told, actually true, about Abraham Lincoln. And many portraits of him were, were painted And it's interesting, if you look at portraits of Lincoln, some of the portraits have warts on his face, and others do not. Which tells you really more about the painter than it does about Lincoln himself. But the story is told that one man was was painting Lincoln, and he kept moving the easel. Lincoln was sitting there, and he moved the easel over here and paint a little bit, and move over here and paint some more, and move over here. And and finally, Abraham Lincoln said, Son, what are you doing? He said, Well, I'm just trying to get the best... uh, angle to to paint your face that I can. And Lincoln said, son, just paint me as I am, warts and all. Paint me as I am, warts and all. You know what the problem with the Bible is? It's a mirror. And you look into this mirror and you see who you are. You see yourself for who you are exactly, warts and all. It becomes painfully clear when Yaakov says that once he has looked himself and gone away, when he refers to the mirror, the mirror is the Word. And the picture that he's drawing here is that we look at them in the mirror, we see who we are, but then we walk away and completely forget everything that we saw. We just ignore it. Or set it aside because it made me a little uncomfortable. I know I got a wart in the middle of my forehead, I just don't want to know it. The nice thing is, when I walk away from the mirror, I can forget all of this stuff. And that's a problem when we're talking about the Scriptures. Because yes, they do reveal who we are. We see ourselves. It's humbling, as I said before. But you know what? The Scriptures also, if we will look long enough, reveal to us us who we were created to be. Who we were called to be. If we will stay, if we will look, don't walk away from the mirror of the Word. Peer into it. Because the longer you look into it, the more clarity you're going to get. And the more your identity begins to change into what you were meant to be, who you were meant to be. You see, this mirror, this mirror is only a dim reflection of another. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know, in part, then I will know fully, just as I have been fully known. Do you realize the mirror is the Word? And I see dimly now. The the Word's perfect, and we'll see Him. He's going to say that in just a moment here. The Word's perfect. The law is perfect. But as I gaze into it, I can only see so much. I would much rather look into the eyes of my wife than look at a letter from my wife. 
Now, I loved receiving letters from my wife when we were first dating and we were separated for about a year. Loved it. Learned about her. Grew in our relationship together. It it affected my life. But it wasn't her. It was a dim reflection. And this word is a dim reflection until we come face to face with the one who is the word. Right? The word who became flesh, Jesus Christ. This written word is a dim reflection of the word made flesh. But we are going to come face to face with Jesus. And what does the Bible tell us will happen in that moment? 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, now we're children of God. And it has not yet appeared what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will also be like Him. Why? Because we'll see Him as He is. We'll see Him. And in that moment... I'll guarantee you this. In that moment of seeing Jesus face to face, your identity will be assured for all eternity. You will finally fully know, even as you are fully known. And John says everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself even as he is pure. He who looks into this word and then doesn't do anything about it is like someone who's looked in the mirror and walked away and forgotten everything you've seen. When you look into this mirror, understand, you don't walk away from Jesus. You walk with Him. He goes where you go. And our truest and best identity is not found in who we are, in that surfacey, immediate view. I look at myself in the Scriptures and I go, Oh, I don't like what I see. But I look more closely and I see a Jesus who died for me. And suddenly that does something to my identity Which is why Jesus never asked the question, who are you? He asked the question, who do you say that I am? Matthew 16, 15. Who do you say that I am? That will change your identity like nothing else. That will bring you into the place of knowing who you are in Christ Jesus. He is my identity. And so this word, if I will act on it and do it, if I'll remain in it, it will not only... Keep me humble. But it will give me clarity and it will give me identity. And, number four, doers of the word gain liberty. Liberty, verse 25. But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. Doers of the word gain liberty. Liberty, And the, word, the world would tell you otherwise. The non-believing world would say, Oh, you Christians, you got all that stuff you have to do. Your Bible's full of all kinds of commands and laws and rules and religion and I don't want any of that. Not realizing that this word brings liberty and freedom. But maybe you notice that Yaakov suddenly changed his terminology here. He's talking wonderfully, and especially in our culture, our our Christian culture, he's talking about the Word. I love the Word. You know, the Word just doesn't sound so demanding. But every time we run across that word, law, I don't like that so much. All of a sudden, Yaakov is saying, the one who looks intently at the perfect law, it's like, boom! Like a Torah hammer to the head. Now we're looking at the law? Oh, James! And there are some theologians out there who think that James is a dyed-in-the-wool, hard-and-fast legalist. 
Paul is the grace apostle. And James was the leader in the church who said, No, we've got to hold fast to Torah law. We've got to be good Jews and forget about those Gentiles. You know, which is not true. Not even close. Read Acts 15. Look at the Jerusalem Council. Listen to what Yaakov said in that moment. And how he came to understand, as everybody else, the embrace of the Gentiles. But that's beside the point. We come suddenly to this, this change. He's talking about the Word, and doing the Word changes me. And then he says, you've got to look intently at the perfect law. Why, James? Why, Yaakov? Well, it's a very Jewish thing to talk about Torah, right? And, and they understood the law as being perfect. Let me read it to you. Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect. Restoring the soul. And the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They're more desirable than gold. Yes, they're much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. No doubt this is on James' mind. I know I keep going back and forth between James and Yaakov. It's years of tradition. But he's thinking about this, this this beautiful, perfect law. I love Psalm 19, and I agree wholeheartedly that the law of the Lord is perfect. But the law of the Lord in Psalm 19, please understand, is bigger than the law of Moses. The law of the Lord, even from a Hebraic perspective, is the entire thing. It's the whole counsel of the Word of God. It's everything all put together. And please get this, Yaakov is not talking Torah here when he says the perfect law the law of liberty. He is talking, actually, not even about words of a book, but he's talking about the Word who is Christ. He's talking about Jesus. How do you know that? Look at chapter 2, verse 10, just for a moment. He says, For whoever keeps the whole law, that's the law of Moses, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point... He has become guilty of all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not commit murder. Now if you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those, watch this, who are to be judged by the law of liberty. The law of liberty to Yaakov is a different law. A greater law. It is the law fulfilled. As Jesus said, don't think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. Jesus said, I am the fulfillment of the law. You could very easily say, I am the perfect law. Because He's the only one who kept the law perfectly. He's the one who embodied the perfection of the law of God, which is why He's called the Word of God. And Yaakov understands this. It's not a theological point, by the way, that I'm making here. It's wholly practical. Because the truth is, I now can practice this word. I can abide by this perfect law, though I am imperfect. How? Well, I'm not under obligation, or oppression, or debt, or domination. No, I have freedom in Christ. 
Galatians 5.1 says it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Romans 10.4, note this, mark this, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. What Paul said when he said that, he's not saying that the law is done away with. For him to say Christ is the end of the law, the word end is telos, where we get teleos, where we get it is finished. He is the completion of the law. He is the finisher of the law. He is the one who fulfills the law in and of himself. How in the world can I keep the perfect law? Walk with Jesus. Because as I walk with Jesus, I find liberty. I find freedom. In this very law, and I am not subject to a yoke of slavery like anyone living in this world outside of Christ. Do you realize that's where the slavery is? That's where the oppression is and the domination and the fear and the chains? Man, do you want to be free from the bondage and burden of this world? Look intently into this Word and abide by this law. The Greek word look intently is parakupto. And it it means to stoop down. But the idea of stooping down is literally to make careful inspection. To get close and look at it. It's not just glancing. It's not just looking into. It's inspecting. The word implies inspection. Like Peter and John. On that resurrection Sunday. When they hot-footed it all the way to the tomb. And John pauses and Peter blows by him and goes right into the tomb. And John follows him into the tomb. They go in, even to a defiling place, by the way, to make inspection. They stoop inside. And they look closely at all that had taken place. And what happened to John when he did that? We saw this last week. John 20, verse 8. It says, He saw and believed. And the word saw there in John chapter 20 verse 8 is where we get the word idea. He gets the idea. He understands. He sees in a way that's different. Because John stooped down to inspect. Do the same thing with the word. Look intently. Search it out. Study it. Ask the hard questions. Don't be afraid of the tough questions of the word of God. If you don't understand something, that's fine. Don't worry. The problem is not with the word. It's with you. And continue to look and to struggle with it and to stay in that place until the answer comes. Because I promise you, I guarantee you, and this is based on nearly 15 years of experience just here at the bridge. My experience has been if you stay with the hard teaching and the stuff you don't understand and don't dance away from it too quickly. If you will look intently into this perfect law, the answer is going to come. And when it does, it's always just like a whoa! It's a huge moment of revelation and realization. Man, look intently into this law. Abide by it. Notice he says that. The one who looks intently at the perfect law and abides by it, which means you live it out. To abide is to live, is to set up house. I'm going to stay right here in this word, living this word, doing this word. Because ultimately... The forgetful hearer walks away from the mirror and will end up completely empty-handed. The effectual doer. I like that, that phrase. The effectual doer. It's the working, energetic, dynamic, holy activist. Are you a Christian activist? 
I mean, I know that has has all kinds of negative connotations that go with it, you know, an activist, someone who's hired just to go stir up trouble. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about who, someone who absolutely believes what Scripture teaches, trusts in the Word of the Lord, and lives it out radically, actively. Is that you, the effectual doer? This is the person who inspects and studies and pours over the Word and puts it into effect and lives it out, and this person will be blessed. Hands-on blessed. That's your choice. You can be empty-handed or you can have the hands-on blessing of God, which comes by this Word. Psalm 1, verse 1, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the path of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in His law He meditates day and night. He'll be like, like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. The effectual doer will be blessed in what he does. Jesus had just finished teaching, and one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. And Jesus replied, On the contrary, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Do it. Why is it that we can hear a sermon and heartily agree with all manner of amens and mm-hmm's and praise gods and then go away and find ourselves tied up, bound up, and captive once again to our fears and our sins? If you've ever experienced that, why does that take place? The reality is we hear the Word, we even agree with the Word, but we don't live the Word. For if we were to live the Word, we would be the most free of all people. We walk away from the mirror and we forget what we saw. Instead of carrying Jesus Christ with us, the sermon... The sermon does not end when we stand and say amen. As a matter of fact, it's just getting started. Now, I joke with you all every now and then about how, you know, I'll I'll teach for 45 minutes or 50 minutes and say, okay, now that's the introduction. Let's get into the word. I ought to say that at the end of every sermon end so-called because now, now is the time that we are to get into the word. Now is the time that you, that I begin to live this thing out. Go do it. Strip off clothing of moral filthiness. Clear out the closet of of raggedy wickedness. In humility, do this word. And you will be blessed with humility and clarity and identity and, and liberty. You will be blessed. We were made to be so much more than a bunch of bone boxes. Walking ossuaries. The old bag of bones. My friends, God speaks life into dry, dead bones. And He covers them with flesh. And He implants in them a new heart. And He breathes into them the spirit of life. And Ezekiel 37 prophesied this is going to happen to Israel nationally. But listen, do the word and this will happen to you personally. You will come alive.
Jesus said, It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word this morning. And we thank you for this gentle reminder through Yaakov's letter. Lord, so many who have come to the bridge, especially for any amount of time, know that we are into your word. We love to teach your word and talk about your word and and debate and struggle through your word. We've even been called a, a teaching church, but Father, to me that means nothing if we aren't doers of what we hear. And so Lord, I pray that as we now go forward, as we... As we worship You, as we prepare to even take communion together in fellowship, and as we prepare to walk out of this building today, Holy Father, may Your sermon begin. May the words begin to affect us. The words of Scripture. The word of truth that You've given to us. Yes, it's a dim mirror, but it's the one we have until You come, Lord Jesus. And I pray we will be a people who gaze lovingly and longingly into it to see our Christ and to follow. Lord, change us one and all and make us active doers of Your Word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We have response time every Sunday. It is your chance to to respond to what you've heard and what you've learned. And it's a good time to start your response, but it is not the only response. You know, I I confess to you, and I think I've said this before, that Les and I both share an occasional frustration when people aren't coming forward. Especially when we know what kinds of things are going on in our fellowship. Why aren't people just coming to pray? And there's something in all of us that we love to hear it, but, but, but to do it. To actually step out and do it, that, that's where it, it gets more difficult. And that's where you really have to ask yourself, do I believe in a Jesus who is here right now and who wants to receive me and hear my cries and heal my wounds and free my chains? Do I believe Him or not? And whether you come forward or go to any of the tables this morning for prayer, you know, that's between you and God. You're not a bad person if you don't. But you've got to take a step at some point. The Lord, I believe, is calling this fellowship to break through from where we are to where He is. And it will happen when we are willing to say, I believe it. This is true. And I will live it out. You can begin living it out this morning simply by coming for prayer. If you've never received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, come on. Come on. He's waiting for you. He wants to save you and wash you with His blood. And if you're struggling, if you feel bound up in any situation in your life, come on. Let's pray about it. Let's hand it over to the Lord and experience the freedom that only comes through Jesus Christ and will not come through you fixing the problem. Any need that you have, As we sing this song, won't you come to Him? Let's stand together and sing.